You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Flannery O'Connor, as our listeners surely know, is one of the most popular and enduring American authors of the 20th century. Despite the fact that her actual literary output is relatively small, new academic and popular level books about it continue to appear at regular intervals, or in some cases to reappear. Our guest today is Christina Bieber-Lake, whose 2005 book, The Incarnational Art of Flannery O'Connor, has just been re-released by Mercer University Press. Listeners of the network will know Christina from her many appearances on the Christian Feminist Podcast, plus previous appearances here and on the Christian Humanist Podcast. But I jumped at the opportunity to talk about O'Connor, and I'm excited to have her on the show today. Welcome back, Christina. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, this book is at least 15 years old. I would love to hear about the process of writing it. First books are difficult for a lot of people. Uh, was it was it hard for you? Well, I made the mistake. This was a, my dissertation vastly revised, not not even very close to the original version, but I made the mistake of not titling it something else. And then that kind of gave people cause in the reviews to say, oh, you know, a revised dissertation, which is just kind of killer for sales, you know, and there's just no way to get around that. Um, I knew when I was writing my dissertation that it was going to be my first book. That's the way that I wrote it. I didn't write it as a dissertation is is what I'm trying to say. I had a a kind of (laughs) weird savvy about grad school because I had been out teaching high school for so long and I was just very driven. I knew exactly what I wanted to do and I wasn't going to take too much time to do it. So that had always been on my mind. So, so yeah, it was hard because, you know, like anything you've written, you have to take a hard look at it and cut out the parts that aren't working and, you know, take out the dissertation parts and, and develop new, uh, new things. Um, and that was difficult. I suppose I would have guessed it was a dissertation just because it was your first book and most people's first books are dissertations, although mine wasn't because my dissertation's terrible. And nobody should ever read it. Um, <laughs> it didn't feel very dissertation-y to me. And I, I think our listeners who have read books that were dissertations will probably know what I'm talking about. It felt like a real book. Well, that's a that's a very big compliment. And it was something that my advisor and I worked on quite a bit. Um, she was pretty protective of me knowing the way that academics can be. Um, you know, they smell – she said it's like blood in the water for a shark if they – smell that it's a, you know, dissertation and, you know, just attack you. (laughs) And I remember her saying that and thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. Uh, I want them to know that I um, have, you know, that I'm ready to write this book. This is not just, you know, me trying out some fledgling academic wings. And she really helped me to get it to that, to that point as well. Have you revisited it since? Meaning to change it or to read it? So to read it. I, I, I assume oh, yeah. this is just a straight reissue because you, you told me they didn't tell you they were reissuing. <laughs> <laughs> they did not tell me at all. A friend of mine uh, you know, sent me a message on Facebook. Did you know your book is coming out in paperback? No, I did not. Thank you so much for telling me. Um, no, but you know, when it did, they sent me copies, and so I picked it up and reread some sections of it. Um, and I have reread sections of it. Um, at different times. So it, I definitely have read portions of it in the, in the, I can't believe it's been 15 years, but I guess that's right. And, you know, one of the things that's really great is that every time I pick up part of it and read it, I'm like, you know what, I still think this is right. And that's a really very good feeling. Uh, you know, like you don't want to pick up a book you wrote 15 years ago and be embarrassed by it. So 
um, that's that makes me happy. Yeah, I'm terrified. I'm terrified to read anything I ever wrote once it's been published. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, you know, I, and and part of it is that I've I've always been very careful about what I publish. I'm not one of these people who throws crap at a wall and sees sees what sticks. You know, it just that's not me. And I've never been able to kind of live in the blogosphere because of that. You know, I I just that's not the way that I think, and that's not the way that I write. So, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I told you the thing that really struck me about it is how much of a piece it is with Prophets of the Posthuman, which is your book. It's almost a decade later, right? It's 2014, 2015. Yeah, I had a baby in there and, you know, teaching full time. But I, yeah. I, I was I was really impressed with how I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound like an insult, how, how little the, the mainframe of your thought had changed in the meantime, because I look at my first book, which was just two years ago, and I think, man, my entire metaphysics is different now than it was then. And I'm afraid to uh, I'm afraid to crack the book open. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I do. Um, and I actually take that as a compliment because I remember one summer, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still recovering from a sinus infection. One summer I was at a Christian scholars. Um, I can't remember what they called them, the summer program at Calvin College. I don't know if they still have that, but it was a great program. And uh, Susan Felch was visiting our seminar. It was Kevin Van Hooser was teaching it on hermeneutics. It's for scholars, like Christian scholars in different colleges. And uh, Susan Felch visited and was talking about Bakhtin, who I have always admired as a philosophical thinker about language and speech and so forth. And she said that Bakhtin uh, had a very consistent baseline that he was always thinking about kind of set of problems that he worked through. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's what I, I feel like I need to identify. And I feel like I know what that is. And this was after I had written incarnational art and was working toward what would become prophets of the post-human. So it was in between there. And I said, you know, I'm pretty sure that my baseline is the body and this fight against Gnosticism as it infects the American church and American intellectual life. And I just and I, I was like, that's what I'm going to think about. And that's what I'm going to work on. Right, and it's it's you, not like that's a subject that's easily exhausted anyway. <laughs> well, precisely. And as you know, Prophets is very different from, um, you know, the, a book on Flannery O'Connor. I mean, in, in all kinds of ways, it's very different. But that baseline is very consistent. I bash Emerson in a consistent way. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I think become, last time you were on here, we got in a little argument about Emerson. <laughs> we did. We did. He's, he's become my he's become a kicking boy, and and partly it was because I I realized how seduced I had been by him, and I was kind of embarrassed, I think, as a thinker, as a Christian thinker, right, about how appealing I found self reliance and this whole like individual autonomy thing, right? And the power of the imagination. And, and I, you know, Flannery O'Connor schooled me basically in, in that. And so it's not, I'm not fair to Emerson. I still love him deep in my heart. <laughs> you know, uh, I think he's a fantastic writer. And I, you know, so I'm not fully fair to him, but, but what he stands for in American religion is definitely an anathema to O'Connor and becomes a, an easy way for me to describe where Christianity can go wrong in America in particular. Well, you, you think about like 
she has that famous story about where Mary McCarthy says the Eucharist is a wonderful symbol, and she says it was just a symbol to hell with it. Emerson wouldn't yes. even celebrate the Lord's Supper because he felt like it was a bad symbol. So they it's are, a, it's they a bad symbol. Different polarities. And you don't need to. Right. And then he decided in 1832, I believe it was, just get rid of it, you know. And she and O'Connor very wonderfully, beautifully, and I still talk about this in my classes, she said that was the beginning of the vaporization of religion in America. And it's the perfect word, right? Taking something that has substance and vaporizing it. You know, uh, it's all about what you believe the symbol to stand for, your own personal convictions, not whether Jesus actually lived and died, right? And so transubstantiation was just of a piece with that a piece with the actual incarnation, actual death and the actual resurrection of Jesus. So I used to think transubstantiation was crazy. And then I read Flannery O'Connor. I'm like, I understand. I'm not, I still don't believe um, in transubstantiation per se. And I'm not a Catholic, but I, but it did make me become an Anglican. <clears throat> I, I certainly do see the value in what Anglicans would call real presence um, in the Eucharist. That something is outside of me that is not dependent upon my mind uh, to receive, right? So you read Graham Greene and all of those great Catholic writers from that era with their whiskey priests, you know, they're drunk communicators of God's word. But, but the fact is that they're carrying the Eucharist and because Jesus is present there, it's not dependent upon the priest. And that, you know, think, yes. And I, you know what? I think fundamentally that's right. Um, because it's not a reality that's dependent upon our reception of it. It's a reality that's outside uh, of us, meaning, you know, God, right, as the ultimate other. And I just find that, I just found that so satisfying because it was by definition not merely intellectual. It was about an experience of God that I couldn't reduce to my intellectual categories and therefore explain away. So when I wrote um, The Incarnational Art, first as a dissertation and then as a book, it was reflective of a deep spiritual transformation that took place in my life in graduate school, in which I became an Anglican, in which I <clears throat> stopped thinking about my own um, intellectual journey or like hearing a sermon and saying, I'm going to go apply this and thinking it was all up to me to go and apply it out of the, my own, quote unquote, strength or power. I just, God just reworked my faith and Flannery O'Connor was a really big part of it. So when I teach her today, I really try to talk about that in a way that the students can relate to and understand because it was huge for me. You take a few pages in your prologue to say what you don't mean when you call O'Connor's fiction incarnational. You don't mean that it's some mystical, spiritual force, like what I think people mean when they use the similar term sacramental aesthetically. I've never really understood what it would mean for a work of art yeah. to be sacramental. You say, um, instead of yes. the artist reenacting divine creation, quote, she shows the God of creation through the beauty of the maid. This is art as techne, that which is made. I want to talk a little bit more about that word techne, uh, especially as, okay. as, as compared to poiesis. One of my occasional dissatisfactions with O'Connor's work is that it occasionally has a ready-made quality to it, like different colors of plastic going through the same mold. Yeah. Is, is that a fair criticism? And does it have anything to yes. do with techne and poiesis? It absolutely does, because her models for art are medieval. They're not modern. 
right? It's the modern poet and the modern artist who thinks that everything has to be original and made up. And it's the medieval artist who says, you know, no, really, let's use these old forms and fill them with, you know, new light. Um, think about um, stained glass or just any of the medieval art that we know. It's like copying wasn't a problem. Uh, they stole stuff from each other routinely. And so I think that might be some of the ready-made quality that you feel is that she just wasn't concerned too much with that trope or voice or whatever of, of originality. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and, and plus, you know, she, she, she was a part of that whole New Critics, you know, era where it really was um, not, a, not a formula for a story, but kind of close to it you know, about how a story should operate. Yeah, I think Frederick um, Cruz makes that article or that argument in uh, the Critics Bear It Away. Okay, yeah. That, yeah. That, that she's so beloved in part because her stories are so teachable, and they're so teachable in part because she comes from that generation of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and New Criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's hard to fault her for finding a formula that works because the what she does with the formula that's so different is really does stand out, right? If you can take a formula in some ways and then – make something that really is exceptional out of it that that to me proves uh, a very special skill well and and also the formula does start to change toward the end i mean you talk about parker's back here and yes. i'm sure we'll get to that in a few minutes um but also revelation Best. toward the end mm-hmm. and both of both of those seem to break that mold a little bit mm-hmm. i think she was just getting to her most mature work um at at the end of her life and it's just so sad because one can only imagine what would happen, you know, after that. I, I do think she was reaching to some new, some new levels there. Yeah. Well, you already mentioned that her great theological enemy is this thing Harold Bloom calls the American religion, a kind of Christianish Emersonian Gnosticism. Bloom loves mm-hmm. it. O'Connor does not. Obviously, it's your great enemy as well. Where, <laughs> where did she see manifestations of Gnosticism in her culture? Oh, she saw it everywhere. Um, she saw it in sentimentality. Um, that was one of the, the biggest places where she attacked it because it's this kind of like, oh, you know, piety, sentimental piety. Like, let's just do everything just so and we're going to be good little ladies here. And I want you to write something that's uplifting. <laughs> and she just said, no, you know, that's not that's not right, because if you can't look at evil squarely in the face, then you have separated the body from the spirit, because good and evil are joined together, she said, at the spine. And to be able to understand one, you have to understand the other. And if you have a Gnostic imagination, you just, well, like Emerson literally writes at the end of his essay, Nature, you just, those things can get, just disappear by the power of your uh, idealizing mind. Um, prison houses and, you know, snakes and all that stuff. He says, just, we'll, we'll just vanish. You don't have to you know worry about that. Um, that's one way of thinking about the, the Gnostic imagination is kind of idealized. That's not the only way to think about it. The other way, of course, is to just think about just the body as a prison or a degradation. And I've just been teaching a class in Cormac McCarthy, and one of the big discussions we have is, you know, is he really more his imagination more Gnostic, more Augustinian? Is it naturalistic? You know, and it's a really interesting conversation to have. Um, but his particular version of Gnosticism um, has more of that 
um, that brooding quality to it. Like, you know, when you give birth to babies like in um, uh, outer dark, rent these babies, like part of the problem because reproduction itself is bad. Right. So I'm getting a little far field here, but I, I just think that, that she saw that kind of split between nature and reality or uh, spirit, spirit and nature kind of everywhere that, that the society doesn't think that those two things come together. Sentimentality and pornography, right? Yeah. Sentimentality and pornography. And she's right about that. Right. Because they're, they come from the same kind of cheap, tawdry place. And she believed that the body was a temple of the Holy Ghost, to, to quote the title of one of her stories, right? And so if that's the case, you can't just do whatever you want with the body. And just like her characters, like Hazel Motes, I argue, is, is a Gnostic character. He wants to be. He's not really, but he wants to be. And he thinks, I'll just go and do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. I'm going to go. What do I need with Jesus? I got Leora Watts. That's my favorite <laughs> no line of the good all. car needs to be justified. <laughs> yeah. Those are a couple of really great lines, right? But he's trying to convince himself of something that he knows is not true. Or you and, end up and like I, Enoch Emery. I, I don't know if your book made this argument or whether when I was rereading Wise Blood, um, I, mm. I picked up on it. But he has those two calendars in his room, and one is one is pornography, por- pornography, and the other is this like Norman Rockwell painting of a father yeah. and son. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that. why would you go to such length about the decor in his room if you didn't find that, you know, just inherently interesting? But those are coming. They're stemming from the same thing. See, you identify this weird tension in modern fiction. You say, following O'Connor, that fiction is inherently incarnational, but also that many or most modern authors have accepted the Enlightenment vision of the disembodied mind. And I'm just wondering what kind of fiction that leads to. Ooh. Um, well, I, I think when I said that, I was thinking of the kind of James Joyce. And, and a lot depends on whether you think portrait of the artist as a young man is meant ironically and what parts of it are, right? But this kind of idea that <clears throat> I can just escape my nationality, I can move kind of beyond my religion and the particularities of my home and just live in this ultimate free zone, right? This free display, free place, um, which of course is what she thoroughly mocks in um, the enduring chill yeah. with the character Asbury, which I love. Who loves I just Joyce? Love that. Right. Right. Who loves Joyce? And, and, you know, he sits there and the artist prays by creating, you know, telling this to, to father, <laughs> Flynn or Finn, you know, the one-eyed Jesuit who comes to tell him what's what. <clears throat> it's just so great. That's the part, that's what I meant by the modern artist, the one who's trying to replace belief in God with, with art and escaping the body. I mean, the poem that I always used to talk about is Sailing to Byzantium. You know, you, have, like, you attain a kind of immortality in art that is disembodied from a decaying world, right? That's what I meant. I'm glad you brought up Joyce because I was thinking about him in particular, and I think of him as such an embodied writer. And you, you talk about him wanting I to know. live in this free zone where he's not Catholic or Irish. But he's one of the I most know. Catholic writers of all time. He's more Catholic than Thomas Aquinas I, in some ways. I couldn't agree more. And so, again, you go back to Portrait and it's like, you know, 
is, is that line? I'm going to fly by those nets. Is that, you know, ironic or, or serious, you know, cause I, I agree with you. He, he is very Irish Catholic. Um, and it's so interesting because I think Alan Jacobs has written something about, uh, about how his rebellion from the church and his rebellion from Ireland and all that is, is made possible by the church and by Ireland. And so, you know, you can't really do that. And that's what O'Connor would say too. So it, it's a fantasy. Um, to think of the imagination as not bound, because um, the imagination is bound, and 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 as O'Connor put it, it's it's a limitation that's a gateway to reality. And it's, you know, being a Georgia writer is what she was referring to. It's it's a it's a gateway. It's a limitation, but it's a gateway to reality. And I've always liked that. And I just don't see Joyce putting it that way. But I I, I think his own art betrays him. Um, just in almost precisely that way. One of your procedures is to read the books she read, which means you read a lot of mid-century Catholic philosophers for whom the Enlightenment yes. rep- represented a really serious fall from intellectual insight. I, I oh, wonder yeah. how the Enlightenment yeah. plays into this yeah, that... Gnosticism. Yeah, you know, this is where I haven't done a lot of thinking lately about that. Um, so my, my my memory of what I was writing there is a little fuzzy. But, oh, my goodness, starting with <clears throat> Etienne Gilson and Gabriel Marcel and Mounier and all of these guys who just make a very clean, trace a very clean line from Descartes right through, um, through the Enlightenment, um, through Rousseau. They hated Rousseau. Yeah, right? yeah they really did. <laughs> Uh, and uh and and I know that she was extremely influenced by that and that what she thought as a response to that would have been like the Hebrew thinking of the Bible as opposed to the kind of Greek side of it. Now I'm not gonna make too big of a distinction between the two. I'm not trying to say anything about the Bible, I'm just saying what she read. Um the thinkers that she read talked about the Hebrew being, you know, even the language and the metaphysics being more grounded in the body and not having that abstract definition of logos, right? But an embodied uh, idea of God um, and of people. And so, yeah. Well, I want to talk about a few of the aesthetic ideas that she picks up from Thomas Aquinas by way of Jacques Maritain Mm -hmm. and Gilson. Yes. What does it mean for her artistic technique that she believes that all things participate in being? Oh, well, that's everything for her. I quoted that long um, passage, I believe, in the introduction from her, the passage she had underlined in Anton Pages, Pages? I don't know how to pronounce his name, his introduction to the, the copy of Aquinas that she had, and it was this description of exactly that, that Aquinas argued that man is an embodied knower, is not the angelic, um, um, not like the angels, but embodied, and, and therefore he has to know, mankind, humankind has to know through the body, through being, and that there's no other way. So the incarnation had to happen, or else we could not have known God, is basically what it comes down to. And I think that for O'Connor, there's a complete parallel between that and fiction that fiction works by way of the body 
it works on a different part of your understanding than just your intellectual abstract understanding. And so you know uh, through fiction because we know through your body. And metaphor works the same way. I mean, they're all, all of this is of a piece in her way of thinking. And fiction, I remember her writing in the margins of one of those books, one of those neo-Thomistic books. Fiction equals isness, you know, quiditas, <laughs> right? The being, the, the particularity of being, that that's where fiction lives. And so that's why she called. Then it was her term, by the way, that fiction is as an incarnational art. That's not my term. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And again, once you've once you've incarnated something, it's very hard to sentimentalize it or, uh, yeah. or pornography it. Well, and here's the thing. And you, and you had started asking about the negative definitions of incarnational. I want to go back to that for a second, because it's so often people who don't read my book, but just read the title think that I'm doing this, that it's so annoying that I want to say something about it. Um, <laughs> incarnational for her, right, meant, meant that you, it's not, precisely not that you start with an idea and that you give it a body, right? It's that the body of the world, ha- having been made by God, images him, right? And, it's, and, and people supremely so, because we're made literally in the image of God, right? But the gifts of creation, show forth God's glory, right? Because nature and, and grace, they're connected. Um, they're not separate. And so the world is infused with the reality of God. And, and so to write, to look at the word world squarely in the face accurately, and this is why she called herself a Christian realist, right? To look at the world the way it is, is to see both that and its brokenness. And by its brokenness, you see the wholeness that it was intended to have. Um, that's what she meant by it being incarnational. So you start with the body of the world and go up uh, to understanding God. You don't start with some abstract concepts and then um, give them body. That's the way to fail as an artist. <clears throat> right. And Gabriel Marcel, and I'm I'm sorry to talk about him, but that's that's the person nope. I'm writing on right now. So they'll you know I love. But I, he his his aesthetics is very similar to that. He says he says you don't you don't write what he calls pièces. I think it's just a French term, um, like a problem play. You don't write a play to try to explicate some idea or prove some sort of philosophical point, which everybody he was very concerned people would think he was doing because he's a philosopher. Yes, and I believe it from him because his plays don't really have any kind of underlying ethical thrust. But it seems to me that O'Connor really is embodying ideas in her mm-hmm. in her work. They they do seem kind of piesates to me. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very easily mm-hmm. summarizable, aren't they? She would say <laughs> she would be very upset if you said that. <laughs> you know, because the new critics, the order of the day is right. Like you, the heresy of not, paraphrase. Yes, right. The heresy of paraphrase. If you can paraphrase it, it's wrong. So she would be really upset by that. Um, uh, you know, so of course I have to say, no, you can't paraphrase this. You know, you have to experience it. You have to be brought through it. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but I, I mean, I see your criticism. I really do. Um, I, I have a it, real you know, love-hate relationship with her. I've been reading her since I was 15 years mm-hmm. old or whatever, and like I wrote on her for my dissertation. And every time I walk away from her, I think, oh, she's so overrated. And then every time I pick her up again and actually <laughs> right. read the stories, I think, oh, right, this is why everybody loves her. 
So yeah. So maybe maybe yeah. I'm just paraphrasing, and that's the problem. And and if I were really having my encounter, to use a good existentialist term, encounter with the yeah. with the text, I wouldn't feel that way. Yeah, well, I think what you're saying is a fair criticism. And we do when I teach my course on O'Connor and person, we do talk about it. You know, whether it's heavy handedness or you know, it's formula, we talk about all of those things and and whether they you know cheapen her original idea and whether in fact she's true to her original idea that <clears throat> you don't start with an idea or a concept, but with people, you know, and characters. To be and, fair, and, Percy's and, even worse. Oh, much, <clears throat> much. And then, you know, no shot on Percy, whom I love, but I mean, what Frederick Beekner had a good line about him, that all his characters talk the way I imagine Walker Percy to talk. <laughs> That's good. Well, let's talk about Michael Bakhtin. Um, okay. You use his work as a way into her aesthetic method. And in particular, what I think you're trying to work out here is the tension between the freedom of her characters and what I'm tempted to call the determinism of her plots. Mm-hmm. So tell me how aesthetic seeing, which is Bakhtin's term, how that helps us untie that particular knot. Mm-hmm. Well, I've written so much about aesthetic seeing um, because it just captured my imagination. And it is also talk about a baseline. It's a baseline that goes through this book profits and the book that I just finished um, beyond the story. And it's just a central concept to all three, because I'm arguing that because fiction is an incarnational art and what it largely gives body to is people, you know, that people made in the image of God, that by paying attention to people, that's aesthetic seeing, right? By paying attention to people and putting them in a story. And that aesthetic seeing is love. Um, because what you are saying is, I see you. And this goes back to actually Gabriel Marcel. He's got a line where, where he says that to, that fiction plays, I can't remember exactly how it, how it goes, but it, it's to say to somebody, to love them is to say to somebody, you, you alone shall not die. You know, like, like that's, That comes from Marcel somewhere. And it's a beautiful idea. And it's exactly what Bakhtin means, that even if the character is bad, you have paid aesthetic interest and attention to that character. And that's an act of love because it's an act of valuing the character and caring about his or her complete life. And, of course, this is the way that God sees us, um, giving, uh, you know, birth to us, creating us uh, as his kind of characters, if you will. Um, And, you know, the question of how much freedom that we're given is a really interesting question. Flannery O'Connor felt that you couldn't write fiction and believe that there was no free will, that to be a Calvinist and write fiction were contrary kind of notions that um, the, the fiction depends on characters being able to make real choices and choices that are recognized as real choices that they have made. And I think that's related to this as well. Right. Because people often criticize O'Connor for, for precisely not giving her characters choices, right? Like goring them with a bowl or, you know, having things happen to them. There's lots of kind of foregone conclusions in her plot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I take that um, criticism and I understand it. Um, it's just that she, she really wanted to tell the story of what would happen when 
you have yourself, your illusions pierced. And in order to tell that story, there had to be a kind of sameness across the tales, right? Because, you know, I've often thought that they're all very much like when Nathan tells David the story about the sheep and then says, you are that man. Um, that, that that's the only way that we can know, oh, I, I do these things too. I have to judge it in somebody else to judge it in myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a way in which she's just telling that story over and over again. And, and of course, it's going to feel like a for, foreordained outcome. But in point of fact, really, we don't even know most of the time how the characters actually respond to their moment of grace or whatever you want to call it. Um, a lot of times they get killed after they have five seconds of pure self true self-knowledge, which tells you what O'Connor thinks about the importance of true self-knowledge, right? It's, it's literally more important than your life or death that you actually are able to see who you are and know you need God, right? So that five seconds of that is better than a lifetime of being the walking dead, as I refer to Americans today sometimes, you know, spiritually walking dead. And so but sometimes, and this is why I love good country people so much, it's probably my favorite story. Sometimes she just leaves the characters up there in the loft without a leg and thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, you're right. I mean, that the in some ways the most important action of these stories is taking place off stage. Precisely. And I think that's important. She doesn't want to tell you. And again, this is part of her resisting sentimentality, right, or the sort of nice little tied-up outcome, even though in some ways there is a bow tie on it. It's not that kind of bow tie where everybody goes then to church and now I'm, you know, now I'm saved and there's this conversion. It's none of that. We don't ever get any of that. With we one exception, get, and it's her worst story. Which one? The artificial, uh, oh, the, uh, the long you think, jockey. You, oh, you, you think that's her worst story, really? Oh, absolutely. And it's fine up until that last two or three paragraphs where she has to spell everything out. Where she goes against that new new critical credo and just tells yeah. you everything you're supposed to think about it. So yeah, if, she couldn't if she resist. did that in all the other ones, I think it would probably ruin them. That's probably that's probably true. Although I'm not sure I agree with you totally that that, that that's too too much or too over the top. But I understand your I understand you're saying that, yeah. But that is at least one place where that that action happens where we can see yes. it. That's true. Maybe because he doesn't die at the end. (laughs) It's true. That helps. (laughs) Well, let's talk about some of the particular works. Uh, You say her first novel, Wise Blood, is hard for us to understand because, quote, it is a realistic novel with beliefs that are defiantly more mythic than modern. Mm -hmm. So how does uh, does what you call the primitive reassert itself in that very strange book? Yeah, I think that book for her – came out of a very bizarre hodgepodge of reading like Marcia Eliad um, and also how Robert Fitzgerald was translating all these classics downstairs while she was upstairs in their Connecticut home writing it, you know, so it got all of these different kind of mixtures of tragedy and myth and other things just kind of thrown in there. And I think she really wanted to give the picture, a picture of this primitive human characteristic that we all have of longing for something 
uh, you know, bigger than ourselves and the knowledge that we have that, that, it, that's there, you know, that that's what she would call her wise blood, that there, that this can't just be all there is. Right. And so she's playing around with, with that, like the mythic sensibility is the, is the wise blood. And it's the, and that's what we're trying to, you know, bleed out of ourselves as moderns. And that's why Hazel is such an interesting person because he's, he is more mythic in his thinking and his sensibility, but he's trying to convince himself that he's modern. And part of that mythical sensibility is that stuff like what you do with your body, sexuality, like you just know that it's not something to just be handed around, uh, bought and sold like to a prostitute, that it's something sacred there. Um, and why is uh, uh, Hazel knows that by instinct. And I just love that when Enoch Emery gets the new Jesus, which I argue is kind of an incarnation of, of, of the philosophy of Hazel, what he's trying to teach himself, what he's trying to believe that, you know, there's no Jesus and no blood to waste and it's just a heap of ashes, whatever. He takes him wrapped up like a baby. And it's the chapter right after Hazel had slept with what's her name? Sabbath been, Lily. Sabbath Lily. And it's to, and right after the, he's like, you know, take off your hat, King of the Beasts. And the next chapter is Enoch coming with this baby wrapped you know so it's like here i'm going to deliver the outcome of your you know um your failure to understand the sacramental power of sex right the sacramental reality of sex it's death and i just i just thought that's extremely powerful and a very mythic kind of sensibility so what do you make of enoch in this because he's the one who claims to have wise blood and yet i mean wherever his blood is leading him it's not it's not toward any kind of truth. Well, yeah, I try to unpack that. My chapter on wise blood is the worst one in the book because I just it's just such a hard it's, a, it's such a hard story in so many ways. And I've changed my mind uh, about Enoch. I think both Hazel and Enoch have wise blood, but it's a different kind. And with with Enoch, he just it's the understanding that you, you don't just have abstract ideas that, that don't have consequences. And that's the nature of his wise blood. Like he gets it. <laughs> and that's why he takes the shriveled man to, to Hayes. Um, it, it, he's just not full of pretensions, pretensions. Right. So, so I think both of them have it. They're just, they're just different um, versions of it. Um, yeah. I would almost read, and I wrote about Wise Blood for my dissertation, and the chapter is published, but uh, hell if I remember what I wrote about in it, so <laughs> I don't know if this matches what I said then or not, but I think what I would say is that Enoch has that drive, but has absolutely no idea how to channel it, because he's this representative modern man who, he it's not that he doesn't have a religious impulse, it's that he has no religious structure. Yeah, no, that's true. And and he's trying to find one because he takes the new Jesus and puts that in a little shrine in his room, which is just the weirdest little thing. Like he knows he has an instinct to worship, right, as I, as I think part of the nature of his wise blood, but he doesn't know how to channel it. He wants to connect. And I, and I have a chapter on wise blood, actually, in this book that's coming out. And, and I'm talking about it more from like a 
literary Darwinist kind of, you know, engaging with that whole discourse and what they would say about about that. And, and studying Enoch from that angle, I, I realized it's like he just mostly wants to connect. And that's the whole thing with Ganga. You know, it, it's like he, that really sad scene where he's trying to connect with the circus Ganga guy, you know, the guy dressed in the ape suit. Uh-huh. And the guy tells and, him to go to hell. Yeah. Go to hell, you know. And it's – and then that way – Enoch's just a primitive person, a primitive human person desiring for connection and just doesn't know where to find it. Yeah. And then he steals the, he beats up the guy in the ape suit and steals it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. He becomes a monkey. Because he thinks that he'll have more connection that way. So it's kind of a, I mean, the whole story is really what happens when, you know, a community just kind of lets itself go secular, right? They just become more and more animal. Like I think that's what the way that O'Connor thinks about the existence of animal and how there's so many animal images in that story. Right, that's one of the main questions that the text raises: why are there so many animal images? And Enoch described a lot of, of those ways. Yeah, and I think lots that's, of pigs and dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, I still believe that that's part of the reason why she wanted to. She's like. It's a Romans one kind of move that God gives, you know, godless people over to their lusts and they, you know, um, become like animals. Well, we should move on to a chapter you actually like before we run out of time here. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> what, a story you've examined multiple times is A Temple of the Holy Ghost. You talk about it here and in Prophets of the Posthuman. Mm-hmm. How does that weirdo story illustrate her views about gender? <laughs> Let's just ask a small question. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just please read the whole <laughs> chapter out loud. <laughs> yeah, I do like that chapter because I was trying to argue that O'Connor, she, well, she has that wonderful line about that. I don't think about people in terms of of sex. I just think I divide people in terms of irksome and non-irksome. I've just always loved that line. And and for her, the spiritual, you know, beliefs, the orientation of people is far more important than anything else about them. And it eclipses all of those things. Um, and, and not in a way that they don't matter eclipses. They matter because your particularity matters. That's the way she is and as an artist is that your particularity matters and your particular embodiment matters. But it's just not as important as being made in the image of God and understanding that you were made in the image of God. So temple of the Holy ghost is taking a person, hermaphrodite that is so unable, you can't fit him, her into any categories with regard to gender, at least not easily and saying person too was made in the image of God. And that's the most important thing about him, her is that this person was made in the image of God. And and that's what the child learns. And so, to me, that means not that gender doesn't matter and you can just forget about your particularities, but in fact, your every particularity has been sanctified um, by by having been by having been created and is beautiful because you were created. And you know, the hermaphrodite goes back and forth and says, you know. Uh, God made me this way, and I, you know, I don't deny it. 
um, the temple of the Holy Ghost, you know, and that means she translates that to temple of the Holy Ghost and turns it into a, a church service in her imagination. And I think that's a sanctified imagination that the child develops. And that's what O'Connor's interest was in that story. Am I right that that's the only Catholic mass in her fiction? Hmm. I have never been asked that before, and I think that's probably right. And I'm, there wasn't actually a mass. It's the service with the monstrance, and I can't remember the name of the service, but it's not actually a mass. There's a special service where you have the monstrance, and I just can't think of the name of it. But she almost hmm. never dramatizes Catholicism like that. So it's no, interesting. Absolutely. It's interesting that this is the story where she chose to do it. Yes. And it very much I, breaks it, the mold of all her other stories. It's it's strikingly different. And I agree, and really profoundly so, because, you know, the, the Eucharist, the body of Christ, is the body of the hermaphrodite. Which, of course, is what Parker's back is about, too. And well, let's and talk Parker's, about Parker's back. Though. Yeah, I love talking about Parker's back. I've written about Parker's back by far more than any other story. It's like I can't stay away from it. It just, it's constantly on my mind because it's such a brilliant incarnation. <laughs> it's a brilliant image of exactly what she wants her art to do. This living person that, that um, is a little mini Christ um, showing that um, we are all Christ bearers, right? We're not little Christ, but we're Christ bearers. And in that way, little Christ. And, and so, he's hardly aware of what he's doing. Well, but that's that's the thing, right? And and that's why he's described as ordinary as a loaf of bread. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's I, just, I've I never mean, noticed that until you pointed it out in your chapter, yeah, actually. Yeah, it's just so, it's so, um, you know, here it's a transfiguration, and it's not dependent on um, Parker, except on him, like, seeing that the eyes of Jesus are on him. And that's why Bakhtin's aesthetic seeing idea is so important here, because he literally can't see the Jesus that's on his back. He has to have an other to look at it. And so the tattoo artist is like the artist in helping him to see that Jesus has his eyes on him and Jesus, his mark is on him, you know, and and that that's what makes him whole. That's what gives him the beautiful arabesque of colors at the fair. That's that's what renders him complete it consummates him in um Bakhtin's language uh and and it's just to to me that's what she wanted her art to reveal is is exactly that and it's living and walking around and not always pretty right like i just love the way that story opens that he he didn't know why he was with sarah ruth because she was pregnant and pregnant women were not his favorite kind <laughs> You know, but it doesn't matter. He needs her um, because we all need an other to look at us and see that we're made in the image of God. And so then at the end, when she like strikes him with the, the broom and he's sharing in the suffering with Christ, right, in a in a way and crying like a baby. I mean, it's been interpreted a lot of different ways. But, but to me, it's just a, it's a basic connection um, that your life has, has had meaning and, you know, the, the ultimate meaning of being connected with Christ. And so suffering is... is you know, it's not a big deal, not in the same way, right? What do you I mean, think I of just, her absolute failure to recognize that as Christ? Sarah Ruth? Uh-huh. Sarah Ruth is the Gnostic, right, in the uh, story. And, and uh, 
and O'Connor just can't help but kind of take kicks at the Protestant church, right? Um, whenever she can, can. And, and, I, and, and to be fair, I mean, the criticism is, is a good one. Like this whole rigid iconoclasm or, you know, God don't look, right? It can be a destructive, um, life-denying thing. And Sarah Ruth is like a life-denying person. She can't even cook. And I think that's one of the jokes that, that O'Connor makes. Just throws stuff in a pot and boils it. Um, <laughs> because if you don't think that the body is important, uh, then then that's what you end up with. Faulkner has a character in As I Lay Dying, same same way, right? So self righteous, but she can't even cook. I, I just you you Parker needs her to be the other, but she's such a dissatisfying other. Oh no, kidding! And again, this is why it's like the whiskey priest, right? It's not her motive or whatever doesn't really matter. It's just the fact of uh, his back means why he has to go back. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that that he can't do this by himself, and so that's why there's that whole scene where he's seeing the man at the fair off in a distance, and he's like, "Why can't I look like that? To have that beautiful arabesque of colors on my back?" Well, you can't look like because you can't affect that in yourself. Um, and so, even though she's not the the ideal other in any way, shape, or form, uh, it's the fact of her being an other um, that that indicates or that kind of stands in for, for God's ultimate other and his eyes on us, I think. That is a very mysterious story in a way that a lot of her stories are not mysterious at all. Yeah, no, that's true. There's a lot of really marvelous uh, stuff in there. Like he is compared to Jonah when he goes to the bar and has the shirt on his back and, um, trying to cover, you know, the image of Christ. And, you know, it's, it's a very interesting biblical resonances in there. Yeah. When I was in graduate school, I wrote a paper about the role of education in her stories. Uh, her intellectual characters are always trying to teach people lessons, and those lessons typically backfire tragically. So you think of something like uh, everything that rises must converge. The whole time he wants to teach his mother a lesson about racism and it ends up she ends up dying and he's the one who learns the lesson well my argument was that the stories themselves backfire because o'connor's narrators are trying to teach the characters lessons and it kind of you fall into like a miz on a beam there uh clearly i hadn't read your book at that time because uh, you you would have set me straight well you know i've seen i've read that argument you're not the only one who has made that argument and it's it also comes back to the question that I think is a central question in looking at her work, which is, does she really love her characters? And is it possible to think that that, that kind of judgy kind of look is not love and that it kind of flips back on yourself and it, on itself, right? In the way that you just described that that's a reasonable argument. I've heard people make it and, um, I, I understand why they do. Um, I just so happens that my entire, intellectual work right now is to talk about fiction as inherently love for characters. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I don't buy that. Um, I don't buy that argument for that reason. Let's talk about that then. Um, what does it mean? What does it mean for an author to love her characters? Well, uh, paying attention 
um, and insisting that the character has value is a way of not being like God. And this is, again, going back to that problem that I have with the word incarnational and the way that people interpret it. It's not co-creating with God or any of that. The artist is mimicking God in his looking at creation and calling it good. To me, that's where the love of the characters come in. So, and, and, and good, even when they're bad, and this is where Bakhtin says, even aesthetic attention on the bad character is still a sign that you love the character. The character is good because you love him, is what Bakhtin says. Uh, not you love him because he's good. He's good because you love him. And uh, there's a theologian who makes that same argument, but I can't think of his name at the moment, but it's also very beautifully uh, rendered, and I need to get a copy of that. I think it's Tilka, I think it is. I'm at Tilka. If I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, he, I just realized I need to find that <laughs> passage because it's so good. But that idea that your love for the character imparts their value, reflects their value, indicates that God made them. All of these things is what I have, what I mean when I say the character uh, is loved by the author. So we've we've talked before, not on the air, so maybe this won't be interesting to the people listening, or maybe it will. But we've talked before about Updike's refusal to judge Rabbit in the Rabbit series, which I know I yeah. know annoys you. Um, do you think he loves Rabbit too much, or do you think that refusal to judge means he doesn't love him, or am, is it just a completely different <laughs> subject? Um. Wow. Um. Yeah. Because nobody's going it. to accuse O'Connor of not judging her characters. No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been working that idea out, and I haven't been talking about the the aesthetic attention, or you know, and the question of whether he loves his characters too much. It might be rather that he hasn't separated his characters from himself enough, and that was something that was important to O'Connor. She thought that you would fail as an artist if you're writing yourself in the characters too much, and I know that that's a big area. Nasty nest and and, and updike studies, and I'm not trying to make some kind of big argument about that, but that might be what I would end up concluding. I keep going back to he he has a line about Franny and Zoe by Salinger where he says Salinger loves his characters more than God loves them. Oh, really? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and Hmm. I I think maybe that's true of updike. I don't know, but I mean it is it is certainly a contrast with her. If you if you mm-hmm. go from reading her to reading the rabbit series, it's it's really striking the difference between the way he treats his characters and the way she treats hers. He seems much less present somehow in the in the fiction than she does. What do you mean he seems less present? There's no there's less of an authorial voice when when I oh, read Updike's okay. narrators. I don't think Updike. I don't think oh he's he's. He's making this happen. They, uh, O'Connor's characters, to go back to what we were saying earlier, O'Connor's mm-hmm. characters sometimes feel like chess pieces to me. Okay. And I don't get uh, that vibe from Uptown, yeah. which is very frustrating, too, because at some point you would like him just to make some sort of moral judgment. I mean, he says that his books are dialogues with the reader about what goodness is. But, uh, okay, but a dialogue requires you to make some sort of <laughs> some sort of assertion, doesn't it? Yeah, so see, I would argue 
that the reason why you don't see that you know narrative authorial presence on the outside like you do with O'Connor is because it's inside the characters. I mean, he, you know, it's like Philip Roth, and I, I dislike Philip Roth for the same reason. It's just, it just feels like it's autofiction, not that it's fiction where it's a, a, a character other than him, you know. And I argue in my new book that Philip Roth succeeds finally at least in some way of separating himself uh, to the extent that he does separate himself from the characters. His novels are better. That's the argument I make there. What novel would you say he does that? I argued that for every man actually. Um, But there are other ones that I would make that case for as well. Like he just kind of gets away from the, the merely um, I'm trying to justify myself and my own actions that so many people pick up on. Yeah, and, and, I, and certainly you know, that's a vibe in Uptick, too. Yeah, it's it, and that's what I think I find difficult and what O'Connor would find um, contrary to the good practices of fiction, right? She she doesn't she would not approve of that. Like, they, the characters have to be other, and that's how you love them is because they're other from you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, there's yeah. there's a kind of masturbatory quality to what yes. Uptick yes. and Roth are doing. Absolutely, and you, you and I would not be the first ones to say that, as you know. Yeah, well, there's probably <laughs> there's probably not a, uh, a monograph on Updike that doesn't use the word masturbation in, in some form or another. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I have such a conflicted relationship with him, as I think most Christian Updike scholars have. I have talked to many Updike scholars, and all of them, all of them who are practicing Christians have a certain uneasiness with his work that does not go away when you Mm -hmm. study him. It actually probably gets worse. Mm. Frederick Cruz, to return to him for whatever reason, says that his entire post-couples output is just an attempt to justify himself. Wow, and couples is the first, right? No, no, couples is 68. Okay. So Rabbit Rabbit Run, Centaur, Poorhouse Square, those are all the couples. Okay, but everything after that. That's what that's what Cruz says. I don't know that I buy that, but I think it's an interesting argument. Anyway, I'm yeah. sorry. We've gone very far afield from O'Connor. <laughs> that's okay. Well, I have been steering the conversation so far. In fact, I've seemed to have steered it off the road altogether. Uh, but here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we talked about that you'd like our listeners to know? Oh, well, one of the things that I'm always saying is – Every Christian should not only read O'Connor, but really should read her letters, her letters. Um, Ralph Wood is always talking about that. If you read her letters a little bit, it'll save your soul because they're just so funny. You see her love for people. Uh, people write to her and she would write back. She would take time. She's ill, right? She could only write fiction in the morning. And yet she would take time to write back to the people who wrote to her. She just had a sense of herself uh, as a writer and a strong sense of vocation, but that also did not think of herself so highly that she couldn't take the time to help people to the extent that she could. And I just think that's a a wonderful model, not to mention the model of um, understanding grace and suffering of seeing your limitations as a gateway to reality. There's just so much to learn from her about the importance of suffering, not just like thinking we have to get through suffering, get around it, but, you know, that it can teach us something. 
not that God designed us to, you know, learn some hard lessons, not like that, but that, that we, we have things to learn, you know, through and because of our limitations. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that her, her disability clearly played a part in that. You can see mm-hmm. this, this huge shift happen once she knows that she has lupus and it's going to kill mm-hmm. her eventually. Like her, mm-hmm. her writing becomes good. <laughs> no, it's really true. It sharpened her focus, right? She knew she had to, she had little time and, and she, you know, the, the, wonderful prayer journal gives a very strong sense of her as a young woman really committed to be to writing the best art that she could write um but yeah it focuses you um and she just you know this is going to be my life i only have these hours a day where i have the energy to do this and i'm going to get it done and she's produced this unbelievably resilient core of work right uh, I, I know you're not a, a huge fan, but when you just think about the number of stories written before 39, that you know, the age of 39, it's really pretty amazing. And, and I, I should say I am a huge fan. I just find her very frustrating. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've read it all. I've read it all multiple times. I've written on her. I, mean, uh, I, I like her a lot. I just mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always frustrated with her. Maybe the same way I'm mm-hmm. always frustrated with Updike. Different ways, but the same way. Different ways. Sure. And I think that's fair, right? Like no, no writer's going to be perfect. Right. Um, but she's providing so many interesting things to talk about and think about. And students really, they really resonate at the same time that they're kind of horrified by it, but they like the horrified by it. And that's kind of fun. So she gets you to pay attention and that's the grotesque, right? That's the point of that. Um, do you teach her in your freshman classes? No. Yeah. I mean, I I, I used to, I don't do that anymore. Yeah, I, I, yeah. There are a number of reasons for that, but I also the freshman classes that I teach are like either world literature or writing, and so there's just not a lot of space for purely American fiction in there. Um, so that's another reason. But yeah, yeah, because I, I think of her stories as being very teachable, but when mm-hmm. I've tried to teach them, it doesn't go that well. So yeah, and at Protestant uh, institutions, it's harder. I mean, you have to teach it in a different way than you would at a Catholic place or even at a secular place. You know, they just don't get the Catholic references. So I'll be teaching uh, my O'Connor Percy class in the fall again. And so it'll be interesting to see how this new this new uh, batch of students will deal with it. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, we've been talking to Christina Bieber-Lake. They have just reissued her First book, The Incarnational Art of Flannery O'Connor over at Mercer University Press. We'll have a link to that on the show notes at christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.